Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast in partnership with McGraw-Hill Medical. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, Dr. Joyce Sow, and myself, Blake Smith. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. All right, friends, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Run the List. My name is Naveen Kumar, and I will be your host for the next four RTL episodes, where we will cover core topics in the ICU setting. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by my good friend, Dr. Brady, who is an intensive care specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston, Massachusetts. She completed her residency in medicine and pediatrics and fellowship in pulmonary and critical care at Yale New Haven Medical Center. She's a star in medical education and currently serves as the Director of Critical Care Education and the Critical Care Medicine Clerkship at Beth Israel. She also loves the New York Yankees and is an excellent friend. Thank you for having me, Naveen. I'm really excited to be here today. Awesome. So today we're going to talk about shock. Let's go ahead and run the list. All right, we're going to start with our case. We have a 75-year-old woman with a history of type 2 diabetes who presents to the emergency room with lethargy. Her family reports that she was recently diagnosed with a urinary tract infection and started on a course of PO Bactrim. However, she seems to be getting worse. Her daughter checked in on her this morning and she was notably weaker, so she brought her into the ER. Her vitals in triage are notable for a temperature of 102.0 Fahrenheit. Her heart rate is 112 beats per minute. Her blood pressure is 86 over 50. Her respiratory rate is 20, and she's setting 96% on room air. You do a focused physical exam and note a tired appearing elderly woman in no acute distress. Her neck veins are flat and her peripheral extremities are notably warm. Her cardiac exam is notable for sinus tachycardia, but no extra heart sounds. Her lungs are clear. Her abdomen is benign and neurologically she is intact. All right, so let's pause here. Ginny, how would you start putting this case together and what would you want done in short order? Great. So let's start with the diagnostics. With her recent diagnosis of a urinary tract infection and now concerning vital signs, I'm concerned she has progressed to urosepsis. She's febrile, tachycardic, and hypotensive. We need to move fast as she's likely experiencing end organ damage from lack of perfusion. Now, let's take a pause and define shock and its relation to hypotension. Shock is a mismatch of supply and demand. More specifically, there's not enough delivery of oxygenated blood to meet the cellular metabolic needs and oxygen consumption requirements of the body. We can see this play out by noting evidence of end organ dysfunction. We can see this in the kidneys with an elevated creatinine or poor urine output. We can see it in the brain with poor mental status or confusion. We can see it in the liver with elevated LFTs. We can see it in the heart with an elevated troponin. We can see it throughout the body with an elevated lactic acid, since impaired tissue oxygenation leads to increased anaerobic metabolism, causing a rise in lactate production. Now, most causes of shock are associated with hypotension, which causes the decrease in oxygen delivery. However, not all hypotension is shock, and not all shock is hypotension. For example, you can have a patient who runs a low blood pressure at baseline, but has no evidence of end organ dysfunction. We see this often in patients with chronic cardiac, renal, or liver disease. Inversely, you could have someone with a normal blood pressure 
who is displaying signs of shock, either from poor utilization of the delivered oxygen or because the blood pressure is relatively lower than the patient's usually high blood pressure. So again, not all hypotension is shock and not all shock has hypotension, but often, often they go hand in hand. So diagnostically, I want to know if this patient is in shock and I want more information to determine if they have urosepsis that is causing the shock. So for the workup of shock, I want to start looking for evidence of end organ dysfunction. Clinically, I'd want to know if they're making urine or if they're confused. In terms of labs, I'd want stat labs, including a CMP, looking at the creatinine and LFTs, a troponin and a lactate. To complete the workup for urosepsis, I'd obtain a CBC or a complete blood count with a differential, a urinalysis, as well as urine and blood cultures. Thank you so much, Ginny. That makes what I really like is how you're incorporating both the clinical findings with the laboratory uh, results to try to tease out is this person actually experiencing shock, like you so nicely defined. So, one question I have I mean, earlier you mentioned that we don't have much time that a patient who's experiencing shock can go south pretty quickly. So, are you waiting for these results to come back before you start treatment, or do you start empiric treatment right then and there? So you really want to start empiric treatment right away. So while we're waiting for these labs to return, we need to start treating her. First and foremost, we need adequate venous access. Uh, that means I would start with two large bore peripheral IVs and bolus her with isotonic IV fluid, either normal saline or lactated ringers. She also needs broad spectrum IV antibiotics. And I'm closely monitoring her hemodynamics as she may need a central venous line and arterial line if her blood pressure does not respond to the fluids. Got it. So you're thinking diagnostically and therapeutically, but you're you're kind of doing these things simultaneously to make sure the patient gets the, the most expedited care that she can. Absolutely. All right. So let's say you give two liters of IV normal saline, and fortunately her hemodynamics do improve. Her blood pressure improves, her heart rate comes down, and then the labs start coming back and they are notable for a BUN of 60 a creatinine of 1.6, a white blood cell count of 15,000 with 90% polys on the differential, and a serum lactate of four. Her urinalysis also comes back and is floridly positive for a UTI. The cultures are still pending. So as you know, here at Run the List, we are always emphasizing frameworks in each of our podcast episodes. And earlier, you, you immediately made the connection that this patient likely had urosepsis. So how do you approach the patient acutely who is presenting with hypotension? Great. So we talked a little bit about hypotension and shock, but let's take a more granular look at this. First, let's define hypotension. Hypotension is a systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury or a MAP, mean arterial pressure, less than 60 millimeters of mercury. Now, MAP can be determined by the cardiac output times the systemic vascular resistance plus the central venous pressure. If any of these three components fall, meaning the cardiac output, the systemic vascular resistance, or the central venous pressure, then the MAP also falls. Now, almost all patients who have prolonged hypotension are also in shock, which we talked about earlier. And shock, again, is defined by tissue oxygen supply not meeting tissue oxygen demand. This is harder to measure, unlike hypotension, but you can look out for signs of shock. 
by noting evidence of end organ dysfunction, which we mentioned above. So once I have evidence of shock, either from my clinical exam or from lab work, I try to classify what type of shock the patient has. And there are four different types of shock. One is hypovolemic shock, two, cardiogenic shock, three, distributive shock, and four, obstructive shock. This is best shown in a table, but let me highlight the key features of each. Hypovolemic shock. So this is either hemorrhagic or non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. In this state of shock, you're going to see a decrease in preload, which will manifest with a low jugular venous pressure in cool extremities. Cardiogenic shock, which can be caused by a decrease in uh, left ventricular ejection fraction, arrhythmias, or valvular disease will manifest with a decrease in cardiac output and clinically will see an elevated jugular venous pressure with cool extremities. Distributive shock, which is the most common type of shock that we see in the medical ICUs, can be caused by sepsis, anaphylaxis, and adrenal insufficiency, will have a low systemic vascular resistance and manifest with a low jugular venous pressure with warm extremities. Obstructive shock, which can be caused by a large pulmonary embolism, a pneumothorax, or a pericardial effusion, will manifest with a decrease in cardiac output, and again, will present very similar to a cardiogenic shock with an elevated jugular venous pressure and cool extremities. Uh, Jenny, that's really helpful. Um, it's really uh, nice to have a classification system for thinking of all these different types of shock. And what I really like about how you described it is that you have exam findings that reflect what is going on physiologically in this in this patient. I think that's why a lot of people like being in the ICU and being ICU uh, intensivists is that connection between what's going on with the patient and in real time, what's going on physiologically and pathophysiologically. So thanks again for taking us through that. Now, applying this to our patient, which type of shock should we be thinking about and how does that guide treatment? So with her recent diagnosis of a urinary tract infection, I was already thinking about an infectious etiology for her presentation. And this was further supported by her vital signs. Namely, she was having a fever in addition to the tachycardia and hypotension. Then on exam, she has flat neck veins indicating a low preload and warm extremities indicating a decrease in systemic vascular resistance, which would classify her as distributive shock. In terms of treatment, the key is fluid resuscitation to increase her preload and to start broad spectrum antibiotics to treat the infection and improve her systemic vascular resistance. Got it. Okay. So what I really like here, again, is how your history is informing your exam which then put together with the lab results, leads you to a diagnosis, confirmation of sepsis, physiology, and then by using your classification system, identifying that this is a distributive shock that guides your treatment strategy. Now, what about the scenario in which the IV fluids and antibiotics do not improve her hemodynamics? What do you do in that situation? Okay. So in this case, this is where pressors would come in which are an intravenous medication that can increase mean arterial pressure. We're going to go over this in detail in our next RTL episode, so make sure you come back. Oh, very nice. That is a good line, and I, um, I definitely agree. We're going to do that as our next episode. Um, but briefly, before we move on to our next topic of pressors, could you again talk about your approach to treatment for the other three types of shock? 
Absolutely. So for hypovolemic shock, you want to give volume back. If it's hemorrhagic, give blood. If it's non-hemorrhagic, you're going to be giving other forms of volume. So for hypovolemic, volume resuscitate. Cardiogenic, you're really going to want to focus on inotropes, which are a type of presser to increase cardiac output. Now for obstructive shock, some examples that were mentioned are pulmonary embolism, pericardial effusion, and a pneumothorax. So for these cases, you have a mechanical obstruction causing shock, and what you want to do is resolve the obstruction. So in the case of a pneumothorax, you'd want to do a needle decompression. In the case of a PE, you'd want to do potentially thrombolysis. In the case of a pericardial effusion, you're thinking about a pericardial centesis. Okay, Dr. Brady, this was just too much fun. We have to do this again. And as you promised, we will come back together and talk about pressors next time. But before you go and we let our listeners go, can you leave us with three pearls from today's podcast? Absolutely. Um, So first off, not all hypotension is shock and not all shock is hypotension. So make sure you look for evidence of end organ perfusion, both clinically and by lab work to differentiate if your patient truly has shock. Number two, using an exam, including a bedside ultrasound, which we didn't talk about today, lab work and clinical picture, make sure to think about which category of shock your patient falls into. And number three, if your patient is not responding to treatment, please, please revisit your algorithms and perform a diagnostic timeout. Sometimes shock starts as septic shock, but if you have the patient on antibiotics and fluids, and the presser requirement continues to climb, re-examine your diagnosis. Did they develop a stress cardiomyopathy and now they're in cardiogenic shock? It's always important to revisit the differential when things are not going as planned. Awesome, Ginny. And I love all those three points. And I just want to emphasize number two, which is the physical exam, as many of our medical students and uh, residents are listening to this podcast, and just how important it is in the evaluation of shock using the JVP as a surrogate for preload and the extremities to get a sense of what the systemic vascular resistance is looking like. I mean, really with those two key pieces of information combined with your history, uh, you can start classifying and then guiding your treatment. So thank you again, Dr. Brady, for such a wonderful episode. And thanks to all our learners for joining us today. We will see you next time. Thank you so much. 